from Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Sports columnist, news commentator, and author Christine Brennan. I am offended on behalf of, of millions of uh, my fellow Americans um, that, that the Tomahawk Chop exists that the Washington NFL team name exists. And so uh, there should be plenty of us who are offended uh, by these by these racist symbols that just need to go. Coming up on this episode of Colors. I was born in the segregated South and uh, grew up there. And, you know, we heard of, of lynchings and all kinds of things, but those things never made the newspaper. I'm proud that the Washington Post has on its front page a story about recent lynchings. These are things that were hidden behind the, the, the cotton curtain decades ago. Dorothy Gilliam, the first African-American female reporter at the Washington Post and author of Trailblazer, a pioneering journalist fight to make the media look more like America talking about the painful history of racism in the U.S. and the potential for a bright future for race relations. Coming up on this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. With Chris Core and J.J. Green. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. We have a guest on today's show. She's somebody that many of you have probably read if you haven't seen her, she's done some television as well, uh, and she's written a book as well uh, in the not-too-distant past. But she is Dorothy Butler Gilliam. She's a former reporter, editor, and columnist, author, and an educator who made history as the first African-American female journalist hired by the Washington Post. That's where you probably have read her. And Dorothy Gilliam began her career in 1957 as a reporter for the Memphis Tri-State Defender, which was a black weekly at the time. She covered the integration of Little Rock Central High School uh, by the Little Rock Nine. And she's been a reporter of and an advocate for civil rights and social change ever since. And Dorothy is a very good friend of mine. Um, we see each other all the time at church and just someone that I think the world of as an individual but also as the icon that she is. Dorothy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for asking me. You have seen what's been going on in this nation uh, since the killing of George Floyd, and you have seen other situations like that throughout, the, throughout your career. How do you assess what we see now as just a, an amazing, uh, brilliant movement against racism that's underway? How do you assess it? Will it last? Well, the question about whether it will last is uh, certainly uh, open. Uh, my hope is that it will. But one of the things that uh, bothers me is that I think that there are, you know, various provocateurs who are among the peaceful protesters and are, uh, you know, some of the, the violence that has been seen earlier 
uh, I think that needs to be dealt with, and I think it has been in many ways. But uh, one of the things that I think I'm very sure about is that we know that the uh, white population in this country will not be a majority after the next 25 or 30 years. It will be a nation of, of people of many different races. But, And I think part of what we're seeing is uh, just a real fight and a real pushback uh, in an effort uh, uh, to, to maintain power. Um, the, one of the things that happened when I was growing up, I was born in the segregated South and uh, grew up there. Uh, and, um, you know, we heard of, of lynchings and all kinds of things, but those things never made the newspaper. Uh, I'm proud that the Washington Post has a story about recent lynchings. And uh, these are things that were hidden behind the, the, the cotton curtain uh, decades ago. But I think one of the things that will help in, and will be very important is for the media to really continue uh, keeping uh, these stories on the front pages uh, television, radio. And I think that's always, uh, that's one of the reasons I've always been such an advocate for diversity in the media, having people of all races um, represented among the decision makers so that the, the story could be told by all its citizens, because it is very clear that a, when the story is told by only one group of its citizens, it cannot be the country that we would want it to be. And uh, I think the, the changes we are seeing now in, in the media uh, are uh, not enough, but certainly going in the right direction and really given uh, you know, a broad picture of what is going on. Because uh, I, I think with the, you know, the current leadership in, in the White House that uh, the next few months are going to be even more difficult because with the defiance that, you know, we see at the top level of government, uh, I think that's also going to uh, make many people who don't know about the change, uh, the changes that need to be made or who are fearful of the changes that will be made, uh, that's going to uh, really embolden them to continue doing uh, the things we have seen, like, you know, nooses appearing all over in the, in the country and, you know, two people getting lynched, you know, not in Mississippi, but in California. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a very uh, important time. I have to say, as a white guy from the Midwest, I have never heard the term the cotton curtain before just now. So thank you for that. I understand what it means. I just never heard that term before. I, I would like to do something a little different, a little broader, rather than just talk specifically about George Floyd and the current protests. I'd like to just talk in general about racism and where it comes from. And one of my favorite songs, it's uh, more than 70 years old. It was in South Pacific. And I'd like to just read the lyrics. They're very short. It won't take very long. And, and I think they make a great point. It's called You've Got to Be Taught. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. 
You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. To me, that I've loved that song forever. I've heard it since I was a kid. Um, I think that says so much. I think, first of all, we're not born bigoted. We gain that. Now, we either gain that through our parents, our family, or we gain it through life experiences, I guess. But to me, that song, that those few lyrics that uh, Oscar Hammerstein wrote, are great advice to parents that when your kids are little, if you hear them say something inappropriate, something bigoted, something sexist, whatever it is, racist, or you hear their friends saying it around them, it's time to call them into a room and say, look, not in our family, that's not how we talk, and I don't ever want to hear words like that again. And if parents would do that, maybe we could start moving on. Well, I couldn't agree more. I, I think uh, that is a very, very uh, profound but simple message. And uh, yes, I think it is in terms of how uh, this has uh, existed in this nation for 400 years that, that uh, you know, black people have been denigrated, et cetera, et cetera. I think that uh, it has been taught. It has been taught in families. And so certainly going forward, uh, that really needs to be done. Parent, white parents really need to be done. There's some good books that are coming out that, uh, that actually that have been out uh, not long for quite a while. Called One is called uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And uh, I think that's a good book for uh, all white people to read. Also, I, I like the book White Fragility. Uh, and that's a book that, you know, helps black people and white people understand all sides of the issue. Although, of course, uh, American blacks have always known much more about whites and have always had to be bicultural, but uh, not the same in terms of whites. My daughter is um, an elementary school teacher, and uh, she just sent this book to me for Father's Day. The book is called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum, who is a Ph.D. And I have not started it yet. I've kind of glanced through it, and it looks really interesting. But I, I think it goes along with the type of books you're talking about. Absolutely. That sounds great. This is Colors a dialogue on race in America. I am Carlos and I live in DC, but I am originally from Venezuela. The past couple of weeks have really questioned my belief in police and law enforcement in this country. I think when I look back, I gave too much trust to the organizations and the uniform and that police enforcement, uh, police and law enforcement are not as trustworthy as I originally uh, imagined. I'm Tiffany Arnold. I'm African-American, and I'm from the Midwest. I'm actually not surprised that what happened happened. Um, my father is a black police officer, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about what's happened lately, and it's not that there's a resurgence in violence against people of color, it's just that there's more cameras. You're listening to Colors, 
a dialogue on race in America. Dorothy, we as African-Americans and people of color have some work to do as well. Um, What is it that African-Americans and other people of color need to know and to remember moving forward um, in terms of what we do and what we don't do now that this movement has started? Because in the past, people have made choices that they thought they had to make in order to be successful uh, in what was called a white world um, because of essentially the power structure, the money, etc. So people made choices, and some of those choices that some of us made, and I have been faced with those choices as well, maybe weren't the smartest choices. But what cho- what do you? What's your message to people now about the choices that we make now that there is this momentum in this movement right now? Well, I think one choice we need to make is certainly also to support black businesses, to uh, give them uh, the the push that they need. I think uh, we should uh, we should also uh, be a little bit uh, more tolerant uh, when we say go into a black bank to do business, and because they have not had the resources to uh, have their bank look like Bank of America or uh, when things perhaps may may move a little more slowly, uh, I think we still have an obligation to try to, you know, build up the institutions that we have. Share with me a choice that you have made that you think might have been one that you're sorry about. One of the things that I find myself being sorry about, uh, if I had to think about a choice that I made, were opportunities when I could have uh, spent more time in my own community when I was growing up, because I grew up in the South and it was harder. And there were people in there in that community who didn't have the opportunities that I had, uh, and they struggled. And I, I, I regret today not spending maybe a summer or more time there with those people sharing my knowledge that I had gained uh, in uh, college and building sort of some of the grassroots hope and confidence that I got from my parents and other people when I was coming up uh, with some of those people that were in those communities. Uh, What I did back in the 80s was uh, left home, went off to college and just kept going. That's one of the things that I sort of regret, not taking an opportunity to go back and give back at an earlier age in my life. I was fortunate. Uh, I came along uh, in my career, uh, you know, 20 years before you and actually went to college 25 years before you. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that was really crucial for me at the Washington Post was to make sure that I gave back. And so I was a part of uh, starting an organization called the Maynard Institute for Journalism Education. And Mm -hmm. we went out around the country and found young people and trained them for jobs in small newspapers. We started a program called the Summer Program for Minority Journalists. And um, we held the classes in the summer we would use the college campuses that would be closed for the the summer. And uh, that, that was uh, a uh, 
program that just kept growing. Uh, Started out summer program for minority journalists. After a few years, we added the uh, summer program for minority editors. And then we had a program for managers. And so we were seeing the need and really responding to it. And uh, I think uh, uh, it is certainly still important for uh, African-Americans to be sensitive to that, that we need to see needs and do something about them. It can be with, with money if we have it or time or or whatever, but uh, it is true that uh, there, are st- there are certain sections of the city where, uh, you know, many middle middle uh, income blacks do not live, and but still the poorer people are relegated to those areas. Yes, and there's so much that that could and should be done. I uh, have, I have a. I'm sorry. Go, no, I'm go sorry. ahead. Well, I would. It's a. It's a little bit off topic from what exactly you're saying, but I, I can't think of anybody, two better people to ask this of because of your generational difference. Um, recently, HBO decided to take Gone with the Wind out of their library for a while, maybe forever. Does Gone with the Wind, which is considered one of the great motion pictures of all time, um, does that offend either of you? Dorothy? There was so much in so many white movies that offended me. Uh, I wish I could uh, tell you that I really remembered a lot of what was in Gone with the Wind, per se. But I think, um, and maybe J.J. would remember, but uh, when when you grew up with, like me, where you never saw yourself in any movies at all, uh, when you, when you you never, and the only things you saw were those white movies uh, where, you know, uh, there was one book called, you know, Toms and Coons and Mammies and Bucks, because that's the way they you know, always had African-Americans uh, presented. And it just presented such a stereotyped and inaccurate picture of who you are. So I can understand uh, why many people would want to take that out. But I have to say that I don't remember enough of the specifics of that movie perhaps jj does no i don't remember the specifics of that movie because i never liked it i understand you know the whole concept of what people were doing back then with movies and i also understand the limitations um that you know role for roles that african americans had then but i never really paid a lot of attention to it because first of all it was before me and secondly, um, it just wasn't my thing um, at the time. We've talked about this before, Chris. I was more into sports and other things uh, as a young man. And as an older man, you know, I never really uh, I never really saw that as something I was interested in. Perhaps it's something that I should look at. Uh, well, and- it, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it was 1939, and it was stereotypical idea of plantation life in the South. So it's obviously rooted in something that today is – incredibly inappropriate but the question is is this i I just what i said if if you were offended when you watched it it never occurred to me to be offended of course now i'm looking at it differently and think well i don't know that i i I hate to you know i don't like to burn books so i hate to say we're going to ban that movie because somebody might be offended by it because the intent of the movie was not to offend well there's always going to be somebody that's going to be offended by something and you can't burn everything but there are certain things that 
you know, they need a second look. And here's the part of the reason why, to me, that whole thing just never appealed to me. It's because I grew up in the South, not as far south as Dorothy did, but I grew up in Southern Virginia. And um, I grew up in a family that was very familiar with the uh, African-Americans struggling. And, you know, the whole idea of working for people who were white. I understand all that. So I didn't need a movie to tell me that I didn't like it. So that's a part of the reason why I never watched it. And, and Dorothy, as I guess we close this out, um, I wanted to say to you, a part of what I think is important is education, which is what you talked about. And I recall one of your colleagues when I was in college, his name was Joe Ritchie. He was actually an ex- he was actually one of my professors at Hampton. And he was one of those people who talked about the power of education and the power of giving back in communities. So um, I'm just wondering, as, as you know, before we go, if you would just tell us what your vision is or view is for the future of whites, blacks, um, Latinos, Asians, every race giving back um, based on what we've all learned from this uh, situation that's grown up since George Floyd. Well, I do think it's important for each community to have its own, you know, inter uh, communion, uh, com- uh, community discussions about what's going on. And also for different ages to have a dis- have discussions. Uh, I also think it's important, you know, uh, for, for, you know, crisp white people to have these discussions. Some things that would not be offensive to you because you understand it in a different way might, you know, be very offensive to me. But I think the more we have discussions in our separate communities and then come back together and have discussions about the issues, uh, you know, we can begin to understand. Because right now, uh, I think the media is, is going to really also be crucial in this happening. Uh, making sure there is more you know, diversity in terms of, I'm thinking about legacy media and television now, not social media so much, but, uh, you know, having the representation uh, among editors and publishers. So discussions can be held at that level about what is going on and what should go on because decisions are made at the table and then decisions, uh, then that, is spread to you know the front page of the Washington Post or to the back page of the Washington Post. So I do think you know it's it's going to be important for all of us, as I said, communities separately. You know, Asians, uh, Latinos, certainly Native Americans, uh, also African Americans, white Americans, and uh, you know just the whole. We we are such a melting pot here. Uh, although so so often uh, that has never really been you know proved to be a, a, a fair melting pot, it's it's been one that that favored you know one group, and so I think the um, we need you know much more discussion about white privilege. What is it? There are a lot of white people who are saying, what what's white privilege? You know, uh, so many more discussions about white supremacy. So many. Uh, more discussions about, uh, you know, uh, black uh, people who um, some who are successful and some who are not. Uh, I'm not sure I answered your question, JJ, but 
without more uh, preparation. That's all that comes off the top of my head. Yeah, I think you answered the question very well in fine form, which is what you always do. Thank you, Dorothy. Chris, any final thoughts today? No, I just going to say her description of well, what we need to do is, you know, talk among ourselves and talk together and all that. That's the whole purpose of this podcast. That's why we're doing it, Dorothy, for that exact That's reason. Wonderful. Yes. So, That's really wonderful. So, Dorothy, as we go, we want to, again, thank you for taking your time to talk to us. And bef- the last thing I'd like for you to do, if you would, just before we go, is to tell us a little bit more about your book, because people should read that book. Uh, my book, uh, Trailblazer, is, is a pioneering journalist fight to make the media look more like America. And uh, I have to say that I was very pleased, a, little, a group of young people in uh Alabama uh, just uh, did a bio video and and won the National History Day contest talking about trail trailblazer. Uh, And it was, uh, you know, integrated group. Uh, So it's it's uh, but the book is uh, it's been out a little more than a year and um, it's uh, currently um, I've just sold the rights to a in, a, in an entertainment company mm-hmm. with the possibility of doing some kind of film. So this is the first time I've spoken about it in public. You just broke news. Well, we will make sure that that news is known and heard. Dorothy, thank you so <laughs> much for joining Chris and me today. Thank you very much for having me. And all the best with this podcast. It's a great idea. Thank you. Thank you. This is Colors. A dialogue on race in America with Chris Core and JJ Green. I've been a lot in the uh, news recently about um, advertising brands, JJ, and I, I'm really curious to get your take on this. Aunt Jemima, for example, is a brand that you and I have seen our whole lives. Uncle Ben's Rice, we've seen our whole lives. It never occurred to me growing up that these were anything negative. That's good syrup and decent, you know, rice. Um, I look at it now and I see why there's a problem, but did it, when you were growing up, did you get offended when you saw Aunt Jemima? And I still get offended when I see that because part of the reason why is because I heard that. I heard that out of the mouths of people referring to other human beings as that and it wasn't in a flattering sense you mean calling a woman an aunt jemima as as it would be a derogatory term well you think about it man i mean (laughs) you you know it was designed that way uh, to to paint a picture of a uh woman but it wasn't a positive thing but did you did your parents buy that and did you have that in the house actually no we we used king syrup it has a picture of a lion on it and interesting <laughs> and i don't know that it was because of you know the the racial sensitivities of it but my parents are pretty smart and i suspect it possibly yes it did but um no we it wasn't in the house but i do know about it and you know a part of it came from other other environments and other scenarios other places where i spent time but it was, I mean, there was that, and there was Uncle Ben's rice, and, you know, there are lots of different things, products from back in the, 
the 60s and 70s that, you know, were offensive to African-Americans and and others, you know. Um, So, you know, I have no problem with that that brand going away. Changing gears slightly. I read a survey not too long ago. I think it was from the Pew Research Center. Uh, Yes. And it said that more than 100 50 years after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the U.S., most adults say the legacy of slavery continues to have an impact on the position of black people in an American society. More than four in ten say the country hasn't made enough progress toward racial equality. And there is some skepticism among blacks that blacks um, will ever have equal rights with whites. As a white man, and as somebody who's been in corporate America, and as somebody who has lived a life that's different from the life of most African Americans, do you get that sense as well, that African Americans will never be equal rights-wise with whites? Well, it's easy for me to say that, isn't it? Um, I think that the country is changing in a profound way, not just because of George Floyd's death, but because... Uh, a whole new generation is coming. And this generation was raised differently than I was and differently than you were, for that matter. Um, We were both brought up by fine parents, but this generation has been raised to be accepting of pretty much everything. And I I say that because my daughter's in her 20s. And she has gay friends. She has black friends. She has Hispanic friends. Um, I don't really think that she ever noticed anything about people's skin other than sometimes it was darker than others until, I mean, they, you know, became aware of the issues for years. Um, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll just give you a quick. Well, I'll say this and I'll let you continue. I remember when Tabitha was born and it was in that era when things were starting to change in terms of the young people. But yes, I can see how she got there. But please go ahead. Well, I, a good, very good friend of mine named Margaret, who I went to um, school with in Iowa for forever, high school and middle school before that, listened to our podcast. And she said that, and I was talking about my daughter in a previous podcast teaching at this uh, school in the South Bronx. And she said she her son was teaching in Chicago um, not that many years ago. And uh, the teacher was starting to teach about, well, the teacher was her, was her son, who's white, was uh, starting to teach about slavery. And the, some of the kids in the class were just outraged to hear about it, it as if they had never heard about slavery. And she said, could you ask the question on the show, do some kids not know about this until all of a sudden they're exposed to it in school? Is this not something that they're taught in, their, in at home? So are you talking African-American kids or kids in general? Yeah, because she said she said this the, one kid in particular was so offended that the teacher brought up this idea of slavery that he wouldn't even look at the teacher for like weeks because he was just so offended. And, and the teacher, who's white again, was so surprised that the kid was unaware that it had existed. This is in Chicago. You know, Chris, I think the answer, if we think back to when we were kids and you're not that much older than I, uh, just a few years. um, Kind of you to say. um, But, you know, coming up, we had three television channels that, or maybe four, three or four that we watched. And, you know, there was the newspaper and there was the radio. 
And we made it our business once we got became of the age when we realized and understood that we needed to be informed about what was going on around us, that we consumed those those medium, you know, uh, and uh, now there are literally thousands of channels of information for people and children have mobile phones where they can just pull in all of this information and there's so many streams of information and there's so many things in everyone's life so many demands on time you know people have jobs and they have second jobs and they have hobbies and they have things that they do Um, and, and so the point that I'm trying to make is there are so many streams of information into the lives of young people today uh, who's to say that that young person had never heard it because he wasn't listening? Not saying that he ignored it. Sometimes we get distracted when when people are telling us important things. Another thing, maybe he never never did. Maybe he never did hear it because the people, his guardians or parents, um, wanted him to live a different life or be a part of a new reality. I can't say for sure what the situation was, but I can say there is an awful lot of inf- there are an awful lot of information streams out there right now. Uh, and as time passes, if you don't talk about things, they're forgotten. And, you know, some of the people that now have children may not have heard those stories when they were children and may not have known about the importance of talking to their children about it. And that could be a possibility as well. There are just so many possibilities here. But the bottom line on it is everyone needs to know about it. And I think everybody's getting a heavy dose of it right now. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. Right now. Yeah, I agree. That's going to do it for this episode. I'm JJ Green and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode, former Maryland Attorney General Douglas Gansler on the nation's newfound racial awareness. There's no question in my mind it's going to have a positive outcome. That may not be today when people think maybe we're going too far on the name changing and the statute is coming down and so forth. But the idea that people are now conscious of race and the dialogue that's going on now in quarters of our country that never really considered these issues before, I think we'll have, it will be positive as we go forward. The question will be, what are the tangible outcomes from this? And will there actually be more access um, and opportunity provided to folks of all races who happen to live everywhere? That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. If you'd like to make a comment or ask a question, email us at colors at WTOP.com. And of course, before we go, it's important to give credit where credit is due. So here we go. Hillary Howard, Rick Doc Walker, Brennan Hazelton, Mike Chikaitis, Liz Anderson, Sean Anderson, no relation, Ashley Johnson, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Beth Gibbs, Lisa Weiner, Thomas Warren, Karen Hansen, Larry Sindas, Ellie Rowe, Dimitri Sotis, Kyle Cooper, and for the music this week, Cosmic and Jesse Gallagher. And of course... Thank you for listening. And remember, keep talking to each other. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Follow us on Twitter at Podcast Colors, one word, 
Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh,